Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. We finished, I think last time we finished chapter 10, so moving into chapter 11 now. You'll remember in chapter 10 we had that great story of the first Gentiles uh, coming to the Lord um, at the house of Cornelius. Peter had that vision while he was there in Joppa, up on the patio of Simon the Tanner. And God called him to go to Cornelius' house and, uh, and to minister to the Gentiles there in his house. And they accepted the Lord, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. And it was a radical change in what was at that point. Christianity was really just kind of a Jewish sect in a way. And now the revelation that God was sending his Holy Spirit on Gentiles as well as Jews, and that was great. It's good news for us Gentiles for sure, but it was just an amazing revelation to them. And so now we come to chapter 11. Peter has an opportunity to kind of spread the news about that. Later in chapter 15, it'll, it'll come up again. But chapter 11, verse 1, that the apostles and brethren who were in Judea and remember, Judea is the southern part of Israel surrounding Jerusalem. It's where the most intense Jews were, as opposed to, as you come up to Caesarea, where it was a very Roman town and all. So, so they uh, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And so the next time Peter was up in Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? I think that's so funny because the story is that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles. It's amazing. And they go, well, how did that happen? Well, you know, Peter went to a Cornelius's house, a Gentile, and boy, the Holy Spirit. Really... And that's what they locked in on. It'd be kind of like, if you told somebody, I couldn't believe it, I was walking down the street and I just felt compelled to go into a bar. And I went in the bar and God just opened up the opportunity and everyone in the bar just came to Christ, knelt down and prayed and it was just this radical work of the Spirit. It was amazing. And they said, you went in a bar? <laughs> you know, that was what they were focused on. They missed the whole thing about, obviously, this worked out well. And they were locked in because, and so often, those who were legalists, as, as were most of the devout Jews in those days, really didn't understand the whole spirit of the law, but they understood the letter of the law. And so to them, Peter having a meal with Gentiles was just scandalous. Because remember, even if you, in their perspective, even if you went to a Gentile's house and they prepared food in their kitchen, it wouldn't be kosher unless the kitchen was kosher. Because, like for instance, there were all kinds of foods that Jews wouldn't eat, but also they wouldn't mix dairy and, um, you know, meat. So, so you had the problem of, and, and as a result, they'll have a meal that has a lot of, you know, cheese and things like that, but they won't have any meat. And then they'll, ha then they'll have to completely sterilize everything in the kitchen and then prepare um, 
you know, the meat dishes and there's no butter with the bread on those nights and there's, you know, no, there's no chance and it was all over a, a really a superstitious application of, you know, the command in the law that said, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk, which was, a, was something that they would do. They thought it had some kind of powers, the pagans did. And, and so they take that and say, well, but you never know if, you know, if the, you know, if you're eating meat, it may have been the, the offspring of the cow that gave the milk, you know, just ridiculous things, and they apply it in a really extreme way, which um, upsets me whenever I go to Israel and can't get a cheeseburger. But, <laughs> although what I do is get a slice of cheese pizza in one place and get a hamburger in the other place, and I stick the slice of cheese pizza in the burger, and it works fine. But, um, <laughs> just not a very good Jew, sorry. But, so, so they're just locked into that kind of a mentality. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. And he said, look, I was in Joppa praying. I saw a vision. This sheet came down from heaven. And uh, I observed it intently. And there were all these unclean animals in it. And I heard a voice in verse 7 saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. It's interesting that even when Peter tells the story, the wording is exact as it was when it happened. Not so, Lord. Um, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Now all of a sudden now these people are in kind of a bind because they're citing the law and Peter is saying that, that God spoke to him. But he says this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. And verse 11, at that very moment, right when the dream ended, three men stood before the house where I was, the house of Simon the Tanner. They were sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. These were six guys that he brought with him uh, who had witnessed this whole thing at Cornelius' house, and now they came to Jerusalem. And he, and he said, uh, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said, send guys down to Joppa and get Simon Peter. He'll tell you what you need to know in order to be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. He said, what can I say? I didn't want to do it either, but the Holy Spirit fell just like he did on us. What are we supposed to, you know, how am I supposed to react? And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He goes, at that point, I remember Jesus predicted this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just something that happened once at Pentecost. It was something that he promised to do um, consistently and repeatedly. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. <laughs> and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now the story wasn't over, and there were still problems, as we'll see in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council, as to exactly how can Gentiles fit in with the, the church. But at this point, when they heard what happened, they're like, well, God said it. He did that. 
um, you're right. And at first they were just quiet, and then they go, actually, this is pretty amazing. This is a cool thing. And I love the way you see the hearts of legalists changed as they witnessed the grace of God. And ultimately, the best argument with people who don't understand God is for them to see what God does because they can't, they can't argue with the work of the Spirit. Ultimately, they can try, but it ends up being really, um, really obvious what God's doing. And so it was there. He, he just explained what happened. And they ended up going, well, praise the Lord, that's, that's great. So now in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So he's setting the stage and said, after Stephen was killed by Paul and, and the other Jewish leaders, a lot of people scattered. They decided we shouldn't hang around here. We need to go somewhere where we can practice religious freedom without being killed for it. And that's kind of logical. And so they began to go to these different areas. Um, Phoenicia was a part of, was like a segment of Syria. So if you're thinking of a map of, of Israel and the surrounding area, or if you're thinking of a Middle East map today, Syria is up north of Israel and primarily today it's more inland. At that point it extended um, you know, over to the coast. But Phoenicia was an area up there. So they ran there. Typically up north it was, it was a little safer when it came to persecution. The, the area of Syria and those cities you know, up there were, had some values in terms of religious freedom because they had a great history of a lot of different religions. Remember, you know, Babylon was up in that area. Nebuchadnezzar had been there. And so they had lots of religions, lots of mystery cults and things like that. And so for Christians to go up there, being a religious minority, it was actually a fairly logical and safe place for them to go. Um, it, it would become a problem later, but it, this was still early on. And so they went to Phoenicia, they went to Cyprus, which is a little island. If you, Turkey is that piece of land that juts into the Mediterranean that if you're coming from Israel, think of the coast of the Mediterranean and you're coming up and then the Mediterranean curves around and there's this big piece of land in the Bible they would usually call it Asia Minor, or they refer to the individual states within there. Today, it's present-day Turkey. It was, the, it was the center of really where the early church grew for the most part, although it grew down in, in Alexandria and Egypt. And, and, but, you know, Constantinople, which was the eastern head of the church, like Rome was for the western church, is in that area. It's we, today we call it Istanbul, but it was Constantinople at the time. They, they didn't like to have Constantine's name associated with it, so they modified it a little bit. But, but uh, south of Turkey, or Asia Minor, is the island of Cyprus. So you have 
over here in Syria, then you have this little island that would form a triangle between the coast of Syria and the coast of, of Turkey or Asia Minor. And then Antioch also was a place where they went. Now, gets a little confusing because there are two Antiochs, even in those days there were, and, and this is the Antioch that's in Syria. This is the place where Paul sort of, when we'll see later as he goes into his missionary journey, they started there. Antioch was a place that was known for its religious tolerance. And so it's kind of where a whole lot of things started from, but it's in present day, um, well, right now it'd be on the border of, uh, you know, Lebanon and um, Syria. But in those days, it was a, a strong city of Syria, not far off the coast, the Mediterranean coast. Um, but there's also an Antioch that's in Turkey. And we'll actually see Paul going there on his um, first and, and second missionary journeys. And that Antioch is usually, in the Bible, they'll call it Antioch Pisidia, which Pisidia is the area of Turkey there. And so in that, in that Antioch, there was a lot of persecution ultimately. But in the Antioch that was in Syria, there really wasn't. And so they, a lot of people went there. And it says that uh, they were preaching uh, the word to no one but the Jews only. So they hadn't got the idea that Gentiles could get saved either. But there were plenty of Jews who were ready to hear the gospel. And so things were really booming there for them. And some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of these guys, when they came to Antioch, rather than just preach to Jews, they started preaching to the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenists were Jews but they were Jews who were more oriented toward Greek culture. They spoke Greek and they saw themselves as being descendants of Greek and they just happened to be Jewish. And so remember earlier the, in Acts 6 when there was a dispute over taking care of widows, the issue was the, the Hellenistic Jews felt like people were prejudiced against them and so their, their women weren't being taken care of. Well here they... They didn't just speak to devout Jews, but they were also speaking to kind of the Jack Jews, the ones who were like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of, I, I know I'm Jewish, much like many Jews today. They're Jewish, but they're not really religious Jews. They just know that, that they come from Jewish ancestry. So that was a step for them as they began to minister to those outside, for the most part, outside the synagogue and, of course, a lot of these people were really open to the gospel because they kind of had a Jewish heritage in a way, but they were more from contemporary society. And so it made sense that they would be looking for something more. For some reason, they had rejected devout Judaism because they probably couldn't hang with the strict lifestyle or whatever. And so these were, these were sitting ducks for... Um, for the gospel. They were looking for something unique. Just like today, if there are people who grow up in a religion, but the religion's kind of letting them down, often all they need to do is hear the truth of the gospel, and they are more inclined to 
to convert to a relationship with Jesus than people who are staunch atheists or people who are real hardcore in their own religious faith. And, and you know, you see, I, I see this so often when I talk to people who, like if I talk to a Mormon, for instance, who's really into Mormonism, it's like, I'm, it's really hard to get through to them. But when you talk to somebody who's raised in the Mormon church, they kind of, they miss the family aspect of it and everything, but they can't really hang with all the superstition, then often they're people who are really open. You see the same thing happening in, in the Catholic church where, and it, it's, it's tricky and I'm not necessarily equating Catholicism with Mormonism, although they have a lot of similarities and both of them, they all think they're, they're believers. We know that it's faith in Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with him that's really what matters. But so often if you find a Catholic who's really hardcore, it's hard to talk to them about a relationship with Jesus because they're so afraid of, of letting go of that which they've been clinging on to so tightly. And, uh, you know, there are exceptions. Many of you are exceptions where, you know, you did that. And most of you weren't as, you know, we have a guy down here who was a priest for most of his life. And, and it's amazing when God breaks through with his grace to somebody like that. But somebody who kind of grew up in the Catholic Church and they're like, yeah, Honestly, it never really worked for me. I like Jesus. I, I, I wasn't crazy about a lot of the other stuff. Um, those, those are the kind of people who are really ready to find something real. And so these Hellenists were a real strong breeding ground for someone to give them the good news of the gospel and uh, just preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22, then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So the Christians down in Jerusalem, they had heard what happened with the Gentiles at, at Cornelius' house through Peter, and now they're hearing, whoa, something seems to be busting out up there in, in Antioch as well. And so they got Barnabas, who was a mature guy, good man, just a heart for people, and the kind of guy who cared about people enough that he wasn't going to be really hardcore, um, difficult to deal with. He was the guy who, who ended up introducing Paul to the church and going, hey, let's give this guy a chance. So they said, we need a guy who's kind of open-minded like that. He's not going to blow these people out of the water, and go up there and just check it out. And so Barnabas went up there to Antioch, again, Antioch in Syria, and when he came and had seen the grace of God, that's so cool, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. It's so important whenever we see what God is doing that we encourage that. So often when, you know, somebody's a new Christian and they might have some kind of weird stuff or, you know, there's some new church that starts up and, boy, they're, I mean, they're really booming, but they're kind of goofy and they have some weird ideas or some, like often today, there are a lot of churches that start up and they have a bunch of gimmicks and it's all about electronics and it's all, you know, just, and, and you know, the hippest music and all that kind of stuff. And, and we, we kind of look at that because we've kind of seen some of that doesn't work out so well. And, and our tendency is to want to just stop it 
to, to be the church lady, to be the wet blanket over the whole thing and just go, you know, you need to know right away, we need to warn you. But I like this. He saw the grace of God at work and he goes, good job, guys. Because, you know, people who are extreme or unbalanced or whatever, if it's the grace of God working in their life and if they're seeing that, God will take care of all the other stuff. The Holy Spirit's really good about working on us and helping us. There are a lot of people who will jump into something that's new and fresh and be crushed by the religious establishment that wants to put them down and crush what God is doing in their lives. This is what happened in the early days of Calvary Chapel, where it was like, well, nobody really knew about rock music in the church. And, and so, and I mean, you listen to the music of those days, and it was hardly what we would consider rock music. It sounds like you listen to these guys and you're going, this was radical. Kind of like when you listen to the early Beatles music and go, this was radical. Okay, Stones, I get that. But the Beatles, these guys with little matching suits and their hair kind of cropped short. And why was that? Well, it was radical because it was a little different than what was there before. And so love songs sounded like hard rock to a church that was so used to all music just being about the organ that a whole lot of people missed out a lot of what God was doing in those days because other churches would have grown had they just opened their doors. It wasn't, nobody was trying to get everyone to come to one church um, and, you know, we're going to take over the world. There was just this beautiful love. And believe me, being around in those days and observing it, there was a lot of goofy stuff. There were a lot of things that were just weird and wrong, and today they're sort of embarrassing. And, and yet, the, and God used some people who were, who were borderline psychotic, but, and I'm just not going to tell you which ones, but trust me, there were, there were a lot of them. But, you know, those who tried to crush it based on what they perceived as being inappropriate just missed out on the blessing. Those who, and, you know, it was in the little love song song where they talked about the little country church on the edge of town, and they said, long hairs, short hairs, some coats and ties. You know, and that's the way it was. You didn't go there and just see it wasn't all young people. Like today, a lot of times, somebody tries to start a youth church. They really don't want old people there. But there it was just like, no, you could come and wear a suit. You know, but some dirty hippies are going to come and hug you, you know, and tell you that Jesus loves you. And a lot of people who were really stiff in suits actually appreciated that and realized, look at the grace of God. Look what God is doing. And that's what happened here. And may we never get to the point where when we see what God is doing, we want to throw a blanket on it or we want to control it or we want to fix it. And, and think about this as our kids grow up and, and want to do crazy things. Um, the grace of God is what Christianity is all about. And yeah, people will do things that we know you're probably better off not doing it. And it's, maybe it's going to lead somebody astray, but personally I wouldn't want to quench the Holy Spirit. 
and crush what he is doing. And so the, the idea is when you see God working, just bless that and just thank God for it. And that's what they did. They didn't go back and go, yeah, this is, we need to change our whole deal. It's just that they saw what was happening there and they go, this is cool. And so Barnabas was a guy who, he recognized the grace of God and um, appreciated it. And so he just told them, continue with the Lord. Just stick with the Lord. What a good blessing for us to give to each other. When we talk to each other and, you know, sometimes people ask you for advice. What do you think I should do? And so often you're tempted to tell them what to do. Because I can look at it and go, it's easy for me to see what you need to do. Can't always see what I need to do. But it's so much better to just tell somebody, you know what? You continue with the Lord. You do what God tells you to do. You'll be fine. And you will be. And the question is, do I trust people to hear from God? Or more properly, do I trust God to speak to people? If I don't trust God, then I have to be the one to do it. I would rather trust him and give him time to work and know that you know, the, it's not my rules and regulations and strict guidelines that are going to keep the church in line. It's, it's, the, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit. And so right off the bat, Barnabas had a heart for that kind of thing. And so it said he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And in order to let people do things that are a little different, it takes faith. (laughs) Faith in the Holy Spirit who filled him. And a great many people were added. I like it. Not even, doesn't even say to the church. A great many people were added to the Lord. And that's really what it's all about. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. See, Barnabas had met Paul earlier. He's sometimes called Saul, later becomes called Paul just about all the time called himself Paul, but he had gotten in some trouble, but he had preached, and he was kind of a radical guy, maybe the kind of guy that gets himself in trouble, and so they had, after, you know, he had been under assault and everything, they go, why don't you go lay low in Tarsus, your hometown, and just hang out there, and we'll see what happens, but when Barnabas saw what was happening, the revival that was going on um, in, this, in the area of Antioch and Syria, he goes, you know who would fit in here perfectly? Is that Saul guy. He could handle this. He's a strong guy. He's, he's not politically correct. He got his doctrine straight from the Lord. He's not connected with Jerusalem. In fact, the, the establishment in the Jerusalem church doesn't really trust him anyway. So here's a fringe ministry that I think he would do really well in. And so he sent for, for Paul, for Saul in Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas ministering for a year there in Antioch in Syria. This revival is happening. New new priorities and, and really new precedent being established right there in the church. It became the sending agency for so much of other missions. But here is the established guy from Jerusalem, 
who was open to bringing in this other guy who was incredibly gifted, but had a questionable background and nobody really trusted him. But this was serious, so that was fine. And God's just doing this amazing work. And this was the first place that the church actually became seen completely as an independent entity, that it wasn't connected just to the synagogue, that it wasn't like a club in Judaism, but it was like they found their own identity and they were called Christians, that is, people who were like Christ. Um, commentators differ. Some of them would say that you know, this word Christian was given to them as a derogatory title. Um, I, I have a hard time with that. There's no real evidence for it. We know, looking through the book of Acts, you'll find out later that when they wanted to put them down, they would call them the Nazarenes. They called them the sect of the Nazarenes, or they would call them Galileans, because Galilee and Nazareth were the other side of the tracks. So it was like calling them northern trash, because they were from up there, and they had no culture, and that would have been understandably a derogatory term, which the Old Testament even predicted that that's what they would be called, and they called Jesus a Nazarene as well, a branch, somebody from out there in left field, and because he was raised in Nazareth also. But, but um, this title Christian, although it's not used throughout most of the New Testament, um, it, it, it is when Paul testifies you know, uh, before Agrippa, and, and Agrippa says to him, are you trying to get me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I wish you would. That was one instance. But then Peter at one point talks about, he says, hey, if we suffer for being a Christian, then that's a good thing. So he seems to use it in a way that's not derogatory. Um, although, he, you know, if it was a derogatory term, that would still sort of fit with Peter's use of it. Um, but it's no big deal. The, the fact is, at this point in this area, far enough from Jerusalem, they were seen as a church, as a separate group of people, as a religion, if you will, um, and that was an important step in the development of the church, I think. Verse 27, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Um, Agabus, he's also mentioned later on in Acts 21 when he prophesies that, that uh, you know, Paul is going to end up being taken to Rome and, and to be judged there and everything. Um, but but uh, here he has this prophecy that a famine was coming. And it says it was in the days of Claudius Caesar. Claudius Caesar ruled from like 40, 41 A.D. until about 53 A.D., not 1953. That was when I was born. And I'm not that old. But he ruled till about 53 A.D. His, his wife ended up killing him um, so that she could put her son, a kid named Nero, into power over the Roman Empire. But 
This was in his days, there was this famine, and the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. The church in Jerusalem was a real poor church, and so these people up north who didn't make all of their um, living from farming as much as they did from trading, and so they'd be in a better spot in a, in a bad economy, they began to take up a collection for the Christians down south, which was no doubt a really good witness because the, and, and humbling for the, for the Jewish Jews who had accepted Christ down in Jerusalem because here these radicals that they were skeptical of are actually taking up a collection to help them. And it was like, wow, maybe these guys are all right. It, was, it built an important bridge. It's kind of like in the early days of Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel, frankly, among the, the uh, conservative, fundamentally evangelical churches that were in existence you know, from the 50s and before, Calvary Chapel was really seen as weird. They, they, but when I was at Biola, they told us not to go to Calvary Chapel because weird things were going on there, so, but, so that's why we went. But, um, <laughs> but as God began to bless the church, not only was it hard to deny that good things were happening, but it was interesting that as God blessed Calvary Chapel, they were able to help some major Christian organizations that had been around for a long time, buying airplanes for Missionary Aviation Fellowship, giving money to Wycliffe Bible translators, um, loaning money to the creation research people. And as, as Calvary Chapel got involved in other things that God was doing, it helped people to realize that it wasn't a cult, that it was just they were going, hey, we're brothers in Christ. And, and so this is something that was happening there too. And so they did it and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They thought, I'm sure they thought two things. First of all, Barnabas is on good terms with the people down in Jerusalem. They're the ones that sent him up to Antioch in Syria. Um, Saul was a guy they were really suspicious of. If these guys would go together, then it would be like, wow. I guess either, you know, Paul has brainwashed Barnabas, but most likely it would be, this is okay. Barnabas wouldn't be supporting this and ministering with Paul if it wasn't something that the hand of God was on. And not only that, they're bringing a gift for the church with no strings attached. And so, again, an important step in, in the unifying of what the Holy Spirit was doing in the church. Chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king, this was Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, um, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Herod Agrippa was somebody who just wanted to win points with the Jews because the area over which he was in charge included Jerusalem. And you have the temple there and you've got this religion that he doesn't completely understand. Herod the Great had really tried to build bridges with them and got into interested in Judaism and things like that. So Herod Agrippa is saying, okay, I need to maintain the peace in, in the south, in Judea, and so I'll just start to lash out at Christians, which will make the Jews happy with me. And so he began to harass some from the church, 
And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. What a, what a great accomplishment this would be if he killed James, one of the main disciples, and then Peter, who was really at the center of the apostles in a lot of ways, and killing him would be great, so he arrested him. And, uh, but it was during the days of unleavened bread, he understood, this is a Jewish holiday, it's not a good time to kill Peter, it'll make me look bad, so we'll wait a little bit. But when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Four squads of soldiers. The, um, the word there for squad is actually a word that was, there were, there were tetrads, which a tetrad was four soldiers. So he had four groups of four soldiers um, so 16 soldiers altogether that were responsible just to guard Peter. They would work in, in um, shifts, and so you'd have four at a time, and they divided up the, the day into four watches. And so you'd have two guys inside on either side of Peter. You'd have two guys outside guarding the door, and the other 12 guys are resting or sleeping so that then they can take their shift. So they weren't taking chances, and, and as soon as the Passover was over, they were going to kill him. But Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping or guarding the prison. So two guys handcuffed to him, two guys watching the door from the outside. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, middle of the night. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. So he just whacks him and said, Arise quickly. And his chains just fell off his hands. And Peter probably just figured he was dreaming. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your, your jacket and follow me. So he went out and followed him and didn't know that what was done by the angel was real, thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. The door just opened up. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed with him. And when Peter had come to himself, the cool air kind of like, well, I'm, this is real. Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So Peter at this point, I mean, you'd start to think, you just escaped from prison. You kind of expect he'd run as far away as he could. Um, that's probably what I would be thinking if I managed to get out of prison. Except think about how he got out of prison. <laughs> Angel comes, knocks off the handcuffs, picks him up. They walk right past everyone. Gate opens automatically, and he's out. Things like that would tend to give you confidence, you know. And and what's Herod going to do? Try it again, you know? Is he going to lock him up again? Um, and so Peter was just like, "Cool, this is great." And so, verse twelve, when he had considered this, 
He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. John Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was very close to Peter. Peter called him his son in the faith, so perhaps Peter had led him to the Lord, or perhaps he just mentored him. But the church met at his mom's house. One of the reasons why when we studied the Gospel of Mark, I suggested that Mark probably grew up in the home of a single mother because it wouldn't be called Mary's house, it would be called her husband's house if, if she had been married. So came to that house and people were having an all-night prayer meeting. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. She's like so excited she didn't open the door, she just ran in and goes, Peter's out here. And they said to her, you are crazy. You're out of your mind. You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, oh, it's his angel or it's his ghost. Now Peter continued knocking. He could walk out of prison, but he can't get them to open a door to let him into the prayer meeting. And it reminds you of Jesus and in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea as he's knocking on the door of the church trying to get in. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he motioned to them with his hand to keep silent. He goes, shh, calm down. Let's not make a big deal. It's, it's the middle of the night. And he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James. Now, this isn't James, the brother of John, because he had been killed earlier in the chapter. This would be James who wrote the book of James, and this James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. He was uh, the son of, most likely, of Mary and Joseph, um, obviously only a half-brother to Jesus because Joseph wasn't Jesus' real dad. Jesus was born of Mary when she was still a virgin. This James ended up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem because Peter would be off you know, on ministry trips. Obviously, Paul was off doing that, as was Barnabas, as was Silas, and many of the other leaders. So at this point already, interestingly, James was becoming a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and Peter kind of acknowledged that, um, which is kind of interesting to people who see Peter as being the head of the church in those days, he actually seemed to defer to James at this point. James had a miraculous conversion. He grew up watching Jesus his whole life, um, but he didn't believe until after Jesus rose from the dead. And so, but you know, once you see your half-brother rise from the dead and you're like, you can't fool me. I know this is him. I know he couldn't fake this thing. He was never, you know, this is real then no doubt James became uh, just a stalwart of the faith. And you see it in the book of James as he is just exhorting in a practical way the importance of a spiritual life, the importance of devotion to Jesus, and also, so he said, yeah, go, go let James know what's going on and the other guys. And then he departed and went to another place, figured, you know, God's calling me somewhere else, but let these guys know I got out. As soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Sixteen guys whose lives are on the line, 
Peter's gone and they have to explain it. And when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod was like, I am sick of this stuff. This is too weird. Something spooky about the area of Jerusalem where he was hanging out. So he said, I'm going to go where I'm comfortable, and that is Caesarea. As we talked about last week, Caesarea was this incredible Roman town named after Caesar that was, that's on the coast of, of the Mediterranean. It, to me, Caesarea is, is one of the most beautiful places in Israel um, to this day. There are amazing ruins there, a great um, you know, uh, stadium that's right there on the water. You sit, we sit in those seats of the stadium and I do a Bible study and you can just, it's amazing. It's just still there. So much of it is laid out. It's an incredible place and he would feel more comfortable there. So he goes, okay, forget you guys. I'm going to Vegas. And so he goes, he just goes to Caesarea and Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two coastal cities that were north of Caesarea. Caesarea is kind of around the middle of where Israel is on the Mediterranean coast. He was having a problem with the people from Tyre and Sidon who tended to be really um, arrogant because they were wealthy, um, because those were great trading cities. But they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. See, it was harder to get food at that point, but Caesar, of course, had access to food. They had access to money, and so they bought their way into smoothing things out with Caesar so they could come to a sort of a peace so they could continue to do trade. Because as businessmen, they couldn't, without the products, they couldn't do business and their ports would be worthless. So they made friends with this guy Blastus, which, you know, if any of you are, are pregnant and you're going to have a boy, that'd be kind of a cool name, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, maybe not. But at least the men can argue for it. But they, they tried to make peace, and so on a set day, they were having this celebration, and it says, so on a set day, now that was a term, a technical term that they used for a specific day in their Olympic-type competition. And so they were kind of having this celebration. No doubt the athletes from Tyre and Sidon came down and were competing there. And, and so often having that kind of an event was a way that they would smooth things out, just like in our world today, where often you can have really cold relations with another country, but all of a sudden you have, as we did with China years ago, that ping-pong diplomacy where you begin to celebrate athletically and it opens the door to um, better relations later. So they were having one of those celebrations and it was a special day and Herod was there. It was like probably opening day of these games. And he was arrayed in royal apparel. We know from Josephus that this royal apparel that he was wearing was completely made of silver. So it was beautiful. It would just glisten in the sun. And, um, 
And so he was wearing that and he sat on his throne. That's not the throne that he would rule from. In the stadium, there would be a place that was the VIP box seat where no doubt he was sitting there and perhaps a couple of representatives from Tyre and Sidon and some of his advisors would be there. And again, to this day, you can see in the stadium exactly where um, he would have been sitting. Um, Eddie McRae led worship from that place. But so he's sitting there and he, and he sat and he was going to give a little speech to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And so the people are just like, you're amazing, you're great, I think you're a God. It wasn't unusual in those days for them to call their, treat their leaders like a God. Now, they didn't really think he was a God, obviously. But what they were trying to do is pay the highest compliment possible. Um, anyone who would think that he was a God doesn't really believe in God at all. And there are people who would like to deify um, human beings. And it's not that they, I mean, don't think that these people were stupid and they thought that somehow he had always been and had created the world. It's kind of like back in the 70s when all over Europe and really throughout the world, um, you'd see graffiti or posters everywhere that said EC is God. And that was for Eric Clapton. It wasn't that people thought Eric Clapton was God. But they were like saying, I worship you and you are amazing. Like Bill and Ted later bowing down to Aerosmith saying, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Same kind of deal. It was really, it's just kissing up to them. It's not some major superstition. But uh, so, you know, they're saying that and, and he believed the press clippings. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Now this was a technical, um, this was a medical situation whereby there was an intestinal thing that actually ate out his, his guts, basically. And it wasn't a super unusual malady in those days. Interestingly, Antiochus Epiphanes, had died from this same disease, as did Herod the Great. May have been connected to some sort of venereal disease or something like that, we don't know for sure. At any rate, the timing, it just happened that boom. You take the glory to yourself, you're done. And he just died. And um, something to think about when we take glory to ourselves. That should scare us. That should really frighten us. It did Paul. He, Paul always avoided getting any glory to himself. As we'll see later, several times people tried to worship him. And he was like, no, nope, I don't want that intestinal thing happening. And so, you know, next time you're thinking that you're pretty good, people are telling you that and you believe it, just see if you hear, feel your stomach rumbling a little bit and every time I get hey, you know every time I eat too much sugar-free chocolate or whatever and I feel my stomach kind of doing that I think okay no glory no glory don't do this and so the result was the word of God grew and multiplied it was a great object lesson better give God glory and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry so while this was happening in Caesarea, 
Paul and Barnabas had been down in Jerusalem delivering the love gift, and now they're headed back up um, to Antioch. And they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So they got him. No doubt they heard the story about what had happened. Peter had come to his mom's house, and they're like, hey, kid, you want to go where the action is? Um, come with us. And so they took him with them. He was the nephew of Barnabas, too, so there was a, there was a family connection. And now in chapter 13, it says, In the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. So they had, and prophets and teachers weren't necessarily separate people. They are probably the same people. They were prophets, and sometimes God gave them information about the future, but also they taught, they spoke the word of God and revealed it to people. Paul talks about in Corinth, in Corinthians that that those who prophesy speak to edification or building up, exhortation or encouragement and comfort. And and so these guys did that and they also taught. And the idea of teaching was rather than coming up with something new, they took what they already had and expounded upon it. And so there were several people there in the church. I mean church was growing and they needed people to do this and Barnabas was one of them, and uh, obviously Paul was there as well and was kind of the, head, the senior pastor there in Antioch. Simeon, who was called Niger, we don't know much about him, but the word Niger is the Latin word for black, and so his nickname was Black. Um, Lucius of Cyrene, Lucius is mentioned one other time over in the end of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 16 as being with Paul as Paul was there in Rome. But he at this time was one of the elders in this church. And Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and then Saul. So Manaean was a guy, we don't know anything else about him. And yet he was apparently trained right along with um, you know, Herod Antipas who they would have been contemporaries in the same age. And so probably Manaean was of royal family or certainly was a very prominent person as he was trained up, but no doubt lost his inheritance when he converted to Christianity. And yet what an asset he would be as you know he had that background, he had that training, and he had that understanding and knowledge of the culture. Sometimes you could be on the fast track and then all of a sudden you accept Jesus and maybe you have to give up a lot that you might have had, but God wants to redeem that and use it. When I was over in Cuba last year, I think it was, um, I met a guy and he really stood out. He was uh, in the Cuban church there. He was taller than everyone else. He looked like a movie star. He just had a charisma about him. He was just, you, you noticed him in the whole church. And it turned out he was a brother of one of the pastors there. And he was being groomed for being one of the highest leaders in the Communist Party in the country of Cuba. And when you saw him, you'd realize that he had a good sense of humor. He was, a, he was eloquent and, and smart. And, and he was a real military leader and everything too. But when he converted to Christianity, they tried to keep him from that by torturing him. And he told me about how they, they hooked up 
jumper cables to him with high-powered electricity and shocked him, and he showed me some of the scars of them beating him and everything, trying to get him to not be a Christian. And as he's telling me about it, he's laughing, like they thought that electricity would make me not worship Jesus, and he just thought that was the craziest thing. But he, but he made that decision for Christ that made him then not able to even get a good job despite his talent, knowledge, training, and everything else just because they held Jesus against him. And there are other people who have seen that happen, and, uh, you know, but it's well worth it. So for this guy, same kind of deal. He, I have a friend whose family owns one of the largest literature distribution companies in the world. And he was a trust fund baby, and he was just, he was making enough money that was just sent to him every month based on being related to this family. And when he became a Christian, the Lord began to convict him. He was, you know, he had six figures for doing nothing, but he felt like, you know what, one of the things that they sell, now this company sells all sorts of books, but they were also involved in the pornography trade. And he just felt like, I shouldn't take money that comes from pornography. And so he just gave up his entire trust fund and that income, and he's worked hard ever since. Today he's trying to work in real estate. And, but he just had to take that commitment that, you know, I'm walking with Jesus, and so certain connections that I might have really don't mean anything to me anymore. And that was this guy, no doubt, um, who had that kind of witness, but he was a, he was a pastor, um, one of the assistant pastors and teachers there in Antioch, a part of this great revival. And as they ministered to the Lord, I love that, they were ministering to the Lord. And you know, tonight as we gather and as we were worshiping God, if you really were worshiping God, um, Instead of sitting there going, I wonder why Eddie's not with the youth group tonight. But if you were just like worshiping God, you are ministering to God. And it's an opportunity to do that that really, it's why, you know, we're trying to start on time now in church because I like to send the message to God that us ministering to Him is important to us. That's not just our preliminaries. That's that's a big part of what we do. And so they were ministering to the Lord and they were fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So the Holy Spirit told them, Paul and Barnabas have a, have a job they need to do. You guys need to support them you need to commission them, and you need to let go of the two best pastors that you have, the best teacher that you have, and the best pastor that you have in terms of caring for people and ministering to them. And those two guys, you need to let go of them and allow them to do what I'm calling them to do. It's really important not to be greedy and hang on to um, that which might benefit us the most if God has purposes in, you know, drawing us away to do some other things. And so then in verse 4 begins Paul's first missionary journey here. And uh, his first missionary journey is primarily just around Asia Minor. 
Then he goes back through that area again on the second one, but cuts across over the sea and covers part of the Grecian um, peninsula and then does that again, coming back and also going down to Jerusalem on his third and then his fourth missionary journey. He heads all the way over to Rome. And um, we will begin next week with exploring this first missionary journey and seeing the path that he takes and the interesting experiences that he has. Let's pray. Lord, those were exciting times, and most of us just think, man, I would have loved to have been there. When you were working in such an amazing way in Antioch and, and in Caesarea, in the house of Cornelius, and in the, the awareness of the church in Jerusalem that you had a big program, and letting these renegades up in Antioch support the, the established church there in Jerusalem and, and call men out to be used in powerful ways and using women as well in great ways in the, in the early church. And those were exciting days. And we could always just look back on that like sometimes people today do with Calvary, oh, back in the tent or the little chapel. But God, we know that today you're the same and you want to work in exciting ways. And not necessarily in ways that feel safe to us or that we would predict. And sometimes you're choosing to work in other areas and other parts of the world. But God, we're excited about what you want to do and we just want to be a part of it. And so instead of just being jaded about our own situation, our own culture, or just pouring all of our energy into that, Lord, open our eyes to our brothers and sisters in other places who we can help and encourage and support. Help us not to quench what you are doing and help us always to minister to you and to listen to you and to be willing to send people away if you call them away, to be willing to go where you call us. Lord, help us to see that powerful work of the Spirit that you've wanted to do throughout history, the gates of hell won't prevail against your church. Please help us to not get in your way. And we thank you so much for Luke taking the time to write these stories down so that we can be inspired by them. Lord, bless us as you've given each of us special responsibilities and opportunities and things to do. Help us to just be faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.